welcome to Out of the Archive Box, a podcast from the team here at the Borswick Institute for Archives at the University of York. In each episode, we'll bring you stories, insights and discoveries from the many fascinating archives held here. In this special Christmas episode, Sally Ann Shearn, along with members of the Borthwick team, will take a look at how Christmas has been celebrated and recognised in the past through the lens of some of our amazing archives. Winter has come and brought the shorter days. The days we love, where around the firelight's blaze we gather, and within the influence of its glow we care not, though outside it freeze and snow. And now the leaves have fallen from the trees and dance along the ground, blown by the breeze. But winter brings that happiest of all times, the season welcomed with the sound of chimes, when friends long parted meet from far and near to share with peace and goodwill Christmas cheer. This festive poem was written by a pupil at York's Quaker Mount School for Girls in 1895. It showcases some of the most well-known and well-loved Christmas themes. The gathering of family and friends, feelings of peace and goodwill, the chiming of bells and the coming of ice and snow. For this podcast, we have delved into our archives to bring you a selection of documents that show the long history of many of our most cherished ideas about Christmas. From the raucous streets of 16th century York to the battlefields of France in the Great War. Wherever you are this Christmas, we hope you will enjoy them. Preparing for Christmas. The account book of the Yarborough family of Heslington Hall. December the 23rd, 1789. A turkey, two shillings and sixpence. One peck of apples, eight pence. A sirloin of beef, seven shillings. Tobacco, two shillings. Half a pint of sack, nine pence. A nine pound cheese, three shillings. Twelve pounds of butter, five shillings and sixpence. Six chamber pots, three shillings and sixpence. Gave twelve poor people, three pence. Paid for six days washing and scouring, three shillings. Three gallon of wine, sixteen shillings and eight pence. The recipe book of the Wood family of Hickleton Hall, 18th century. To make snow. Take a quart of cream and put into it six whites of eggs, of rose water and sugar as much as will sweeten it, and beat them together with a cloven stick or a bunch of twigs all one way. And as the snow riseth, take it up and put it into a dish and so serve it up. You must do it but a little before you send it in or it will fall again. The best recipe for mince pies. To one pound of scraped beef, put two pounds of beef suet, shredded very fine, two pounds of currants, half a pound of raisins stoned, half a pound of sugar, mace and cinnamon, half an ounce of each, and a little pepper and four nutmegs. Shred five or six pippins small, squeeze two lemons and put in a little of the peel shred, half a pint of sack and a gill of au jus. 
How to make soft black gingerbread, as recorded in the recipe book of Lady Violet Derrimore of Heslington Hall, early 20th century. One pound flour, one pound treacle, half a pound demerara sugar, half a pound lard or butter, one dessert spoon of grated ginger, half a dessert spoon of mixed spice, half a teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda, four eggs, half a pint of milk. Melt lard in saucepan. Add sugar, treacle, milk and allow sugar to entirely melt, then allow to cool. Pour on to beaten eggs. Have flour, spice and soda well mixed together in a mixing bowl and pour treacle mixture onto it. Mix very thoroughly. Pour into cake tin lined with greased paper. Bake in a moderately hot oven for about two hours. Be careful not to have too hot an oven. Keep in a tin until required. Christmas Customs A petition to the Mayor and Aldermen of York, recorded in the High Commission Act Book of the Archdiocese. After our hearty commendations, whereas there have been heretofore a very rude and barbarous custom maintained in this city, and in no other city or town of this realm to our knowledge, that yearly, upon St Thomas' Day before Christmas, two disguised persons called Yule and Yule's wife should ride through the city very undecently and uncomely, drawing great concourses of people after them to gaze, oftentimes committing other enormities, for as much as the said disguised riding and concourse aforesaid, besides other inconveniences, tendeth also to the profaning of that day appointed to holy uses, and also withdraweth great multitudes of people from divine service and sermons, we have thought good by these presents to will and require you, and nevertheless in the Queen's Majesty's name, and by virtue of Her Highness's commission, the causes ecclesiastical within the province of York, to us and others directed, straightly to charge and command you that they take no order that no such riding of Yule and Yule's wife be from henceforth attempted or used, and that you cause this our precept and order to be registered of record and to be duly observed, not only for this year, but also for all other years ensuing, requiring you hereof not to fail, as our trust is, you will not, and as thee will answer for the contrary. Fare you heartily well at York, this 13th of November, 1572. Reasons for not giving Yule candles or other Christmas presents by Joseph Roundtree, Grocer of York, 12th of December, 1834. First, because although the candle or other present is of insignificant value to the person receiving it, yet to the tradesmen their total annual cost is on the present scale of profits, a serious addition to the expenses of business. Second, because experience has proved the impossibility of giving candles, etc. to regular customers and refusing them to the persons who rarely enter the shop, except for the very purpose of endeavouring to obtain them. Third, because amid the hurry of business, some customers are sure to be overlooked, and these are apt to attribute to intentional neglect that which is the unavoidable result of accident. Lastly, because the practice offers a strong temptation to falsehood and dishonesty, instances having not infrequently occurred of persons sending different members of their families to the same shop, as well as going themselves from one shop to another, 
and endeavouring in each case to obtain a present. These reasons are respectfully offered as an apology for the total discontinuance of a practice sanctioned by long usage and in many instances agreeable alike to the customer and to the tradesman, but exposed to abuses so great and so irremediable as to render its discontinuance needful. Christmas at home. A letter from Favilla Copsey to her sister Mary Maria Tuke at York from Friday, December the 25th, 1778. I'm afraid you were shockingly provoked at receiving an empty letter I sent last. Our Christmas Eve was papa as usual over a large cake. Mr and Mrs Probe enjoyed it with us and liked the custom much. Christmas Day was likewise spent as agreeable. To the poor of this parish, my mamma gave 30 people their dinners of plum pudding and roast and boiled beef. Mr and Mrs Probe came to see the ceremony. We went and drank and supped in the neighbourly way with them, cold turkey and minced pies. I could not eat much. I may suppose the day I was born, perhaps for which reason I have been used to eat double the quantity on that very happy day to all the world ever after. And as common food would not answer the purpose as well, a plum pudding was made for me to browse over. A Child's View of Christmas, from The Opal, a Methodist magazine, 1903. Christmas is a very jolly day. We hang mistletoe over our doors. On Christmas Eve, we hang our stockings up. And in the night, Santa Claus comes and fills our stockings with all sorts of nice presents, such as oranges, apples, chocolate and crackers. In December, our mothers make plum puddings, mince pies and plum cakes. But some poor children don't get such nice presents and they do not get such nice presents in their stockings so most people think of them because it's christ's birthday so i wish you all a merry christmas and a happy new year christmas in the country by a pupil of the mount school york december 1908 there are perhaps few places in england where christmas is more heartily kept than in the homes of the Midland farmers. These farmers are true sons of the soil, living in the same low-thatched farmhouses as their fathers did, farming the same land in much the same way and keeping their Christmas in just the same manner. We hear enough nowadays of Christmas as it used to be kept, and it is these farmers who keep it in the ideal old-fashioned way. They begin to prepare for Christmas weeks before the day. The best and largest turkey is set apart to be fed in view of gracing the festive board. Great sides of bacon are hung on the ceiling of the spacious old-fashioned fireplace to smoke. And the best apples and October pears are set apart to be specially kept for Christmas week. On Christmas Day, the housewife is up early preparing for the Christmas dinner for she has to get everything ready before she goes to church. The pudding put in the copper, the turkey on the roasting rack before the fire, and everything is left in charge of a kitchen maid while the mistress attends the service. 
It is sometimes whispered that Mrs. So-and-so went out of church because she was so fearful about the fate of her turkey. But no dame likes to miss her Christmas sermon if she can help it, so either her turkey must be in a very bad way, or else she must be very nervous if she has to go out of church early. When the family return from church, the children are sent out of doors or relegated to the back kitchen while dinner is laid. Then the guests come. These are most of the farmhands and a few poorer neighbours. They sit down to dinner and do justice to the turkey, plum pudding and fruits, as only people who spend most of their lives in the open air can do. After dinner, in comes the snapdragon, the time-honoured Christmas dish of blazing raisins, and then the Christmas presents, which are always either on a Christmas tree or in a bran tub. These presents and after-dinner festivities take up all the afternoon, but as darkness falls, the family gather round the fire in the wide old fireplace, and while the father smokes, the children roast chestnuts by the fire, they tell the old Christmas stories, play the old fireside Christmas games, and recall past Christmas adventures and festivities. The Christmas day ends in peace and quietness, for they all retire at an early hour to rest in the sleep of the just. Christmas Away A letter from Sarah Harriet Burney to Annabella Hungerford Crew, From the correspondence of Annabella, Lady Halton 24th of December, 1832 Florence, Italy My dearest Annie Tomorrow is Christmas Day Would I could keep it with some of my own country folks Instead of that, I am to dine with my two Italian ladies, the mistresses of the house, some of their own particular friends and an English Navy officer, Captain Cuppage, who has lately come to lodge here in the two vacant rooms next to mine. He is a gentlemanlike and ceremoniously well-bred man, has been an immense deal at sea, has had his left leg, poor soul, shot off high in the hip and wears an artificial one, jointed and shaped so well that at first sight his infirmity is hardly visible. Well... He and I are both invited to this Italian pranzo di giorno Natale, and I'll tell you how the affair will be. We shall dine in a room without a fire. The ladies will have scaldini to warm hands and feet. The scaldini are earthenware basket-shaped fireproof pots with high handles, which being grasped, the heat from underneath scorches the back of the fingers and knuckles, and that passes for warming them. The first dish will be sloppy rice or vermicelli soup. Then slices of cold tongue or raw smoked ham, bread and butter rolled up like a wafer, and some sort of winter salad such as celery root or beetroot. Then, one by one, will come fried brains, stewed chicken livers, perhaps a wild duck, a plate of little birds sized of half-grown canaries, and a multitude of other single dishes. The whole crowned with a torta made of hard pastry spread over with apricot sweetmeat. The repast will last an eternity, from the vile circumstance of each dish coming in solace. The coffee that will immediately succeed it, and as a part of olives, shriveled grapes and pretty-looking apples tasting like frostbitten turnips will end the fun. 
then I shall get back to my own quarters and leave the rest of their several devices. There is no exaggeration, I do assure you, in this account. How different would be in England the customs? A letter from 2nd Lieutenant Lawrence Roundtree to his family, kept by his mother. December 22nd, 1916, France. Revered family, this is to convey shortly and sweetly, all too shortly I'm afraid, my respects, Christmas and New Year wishes and all that sort of tosh. I saw that because it doesn't seem much good wishing anyone a happy New Year or a Merry Christmas just now, does it? I feel like keeping all the festivities and festive feelings until that time, not far distant, when we can enjoy them properly and then have them in one big long extended gorge and get really flup. They, whoever they are, say that third time is lucky. This will make the third yuletide that I have been absent from the family board, so at that rate next year I ought to be there. Hope so anyway. At present, life is difficult. So many parcels have arrived in the last few days that I am surrounded, overpowered, undermined with them. The postal staff have got into the habit of expecting at least one for me every day. They weep bitter tears of disappointment if there isn't. The record was sustained yesterday by one which arrived in a state of decomposition. In fact, it looked as if it had been in a rather bad railway smash and arrived marked died of wounds. We gave it a decent burial, but no one present recognised the deceased. No inquest. I, I believe I may have mentioned that the MGC Heavy is noted for one thing in special, and that is rumours. Two days ago we were told to give up all hope of any leave, but yesterday and today a glean of hope has arisen. They say that it means that only 10% go at any one time. If that's true, and I, I don't say it is, you see, it may be ten weeks before I get any. Cheerful, ain't it? I'm going to close this. I'm a man of many troubles today, and I don't feel a bit like writing. I might enumerate my troubles for your sympathy, but I have an idea they'd look rather paltry on paper. So it uh, remains to me to say au revoir, keep smiling. Lots of love to you all. Laurie. Seasonable Thoughts by a patient at the Retreat Psychiatric Hospital, York, December 1924. Christmas Day. What varied memories the words will conjure up in the minds of my readers. No two of them will be exactly the same. But for the benefit of those among them who have never spent Christmas Day within the walls of a hospital, let me try and put on paper some idea of what it is like. Preparations have been going on for days and weeks beforehand, Busy fingers have skilfully fashioned dainty decorations for rooms and corridors, and when we go to rest on Christmas Eve, our immediate surroundings have a decidedly festive appearance. Quite early in the morning, we are aroused by the strains of the carols with which we have been familiar from childhood. Through the building and roundabout outside goes a bevy of nurses, and their fresh young voices call on us to awake and salute this happy morn. 
Perhaps some of us do so with a feeling akin to that of the Israelites, who were expected to sing the songs of Zion in a strange land. But if be so, we must resolutely put it aside and think of something else. Timbuktu, if nothing better, offers. By nine o'clock we are gathered in the recreation hall for a short, bright Christmas service and to hear the story of Christmas read to us by the familiar voice of our medical superintendent. The morning passes rapidly away in the interchange of good wishes all round. Those responsible for our well-being take many additional steps that day in their efforts to get in touch with as many people as possible. The opening of letters, Christmas gifts, etc. And the time soon comes for dinner, at which on this day we, the patients, have guests. Our doctors and others who do not usually meet with us in this way share our meal and the tables look festive with flowers, fruit and Christmas fare. We make merry as far as may be. Doubtless, most, if not all, of the gathered company would rather be elsewhere. But, as the children say, let's pretend. And a very good pretense we make. A short afternoon is employed in completing preparations for the evening's festivity, which takes the form of a large party, where probably most are arrayed in fancy dress, and the different costumes cause much merriment. Music and laughter are born on the air, until at last, all too soon for some of the merrymakers, the evening comes to an end, and silence reigns. The trailing garments of the night sweep through rooms and corridors. The revellers are seeking repose. Perhaps if our senses were more in tune with the infinite, we might fancy we heard the rustle of the wings of the angel of peace passing over the sleepers. Whether they are just tired with the effort of being cheerful, or with the strain of trying to create as much happiness around them as possible, and we might catch echoes of the angel's song. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. O rest beside the weary road, and hear the angels sing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. From all of us at the Borthwick, we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.